Connor grew up on the lake. He was an excellent swimmer. You know, we were boaters and tubers and spent almost every summer weekend on the lake. I'm Kate Lundquist, and I love to celebrate humanity and unique perspectives from all walks of life. Listen in, learn, and grow as my friends and I share about our rides on life's crazy roller coaster. Welcome to Kate Had Me Meet. Before we get started, I have to give a shout out to Dan and Kayla Powers, the realtors that make up the Powers Home Team and sponsored today's podcast. When we moved to the Twin Cities last year, we had no idea where to start with finding a realtor. We happened to connect with the Powers Home Team and they helped make our move here so smooth and successful. I can't express to you how important it is to find realtors that are obsessed with getting you the results that you need no matter what it takes. They make you the customer feel like royalty. We gained a house and also a fun friendship. There's a sea of realtors out there, but let me point you in the direction of the Powers Home Team. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at the Powers Home Team or visit thepowershometeam.com. On Friday, August 31st, 2012, Connor Gage went to the lake and he didn't come home. His mother, Dana Gage, is with us on this episode talking about that day and how she has lived her life since then without her son. She hasn't stopped advocating for water safety since his passing. And I think it is so important that all of us really listen well to what she has to say. Uh, Water deaths are preventable and yet they continue to happen every day. So here's Dana and her story. Hi friend. So great to see you. It's been two years since I stayed in Waco, Texas. Has it? It feels like, it feels like just a minute ago, honestly, like it doesn't feel like that long ago at all. You were just here and you really made an impact on me Mm. right out of the gate. And you had stayed right after we opened Poppy and Rye, which has its own, you know, broken story. Um, You really mattered to me in the biggest of ways, more than you actually will ever know. Oh, wow. And, uh, I lost my mother to breast cancer and <sighs> at a very young age. And um, so you were just like almost her wow. personified and just a total confirmation of this path that we decided to take in Waco, which was completely random, not planned. And it was like, okay. And I knew from the second I saw you dancing on my porch, I thought this chick, she's going to be all right. She's going to be all right. So how are you? Thank you. I'm good. My hair is coming back. As you can see, it's crazy, but it's back. And I, you know, ever since getting the diagnosis and dancing on your porch in Waco, and you know, I just, that was, I'd like to think that I was living my best life before cancer, but I really wasn't. I think I was holding back and living life how I thought I should live life. I don't know how I was thinking that other people should think I should live my life or, you know, whatever. So I just was like, I want to dance through Waco, Texas. That was my dream come true to go there and to be able to stay in your property. And it was, you so were great. supposed to stay in my property. Yes. That was not a uh, fluke. That was no accident. You were supposed to be there for me and for you. Waco has been just a huge um, blessing in my grief journey. And, you know, I don't come out, you stayed at the house. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't come out and say it. I don't, because 
I mean, God, you know, who wants to hear that? They're there for a good time with their families and friends. Um, But you, I was like, oh, this chick, she's going to get it. Like she knows brokenness. And um, so you're just a really big part of my story. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, like the connection was just like undeniable. I, and that kept happening. Actually, that's kind of what I did my last week's podcast about is how on my, when I got cancer, all I just noticed how many beautiful people were in the world. And I kept coming across all these amazing stories over and over and over again. And it was overwhelming on my soul. Like, you know, too much of a good thing is almost a burden. <laughs> it's like, I can't take Boy, it. That the truth? And everywhere I went. So that included meeting you and hearing your story. And yeah, and that's, I guess, you know, when I, now that I have this podcast, it's all to feature beautiful people and um, powerful stories and bring perspective. And for you in particular, I just, now that the world is opening back up again, you know, it's record temperatures all over the United States. I cannot help but notice how many news stories about drownings there are. In terms of drowning, yeah, you know, my how you say there's just so many. And before we lost our Connor, and I can talk about that in a minute if you'd like to hear the story, but, you know, before we lost Connor, it was like drowning happens to other people. Right. And then we became other people. And there are, it's probably like cancer, right? Like that just happens to other people. That, that can't happen to me. And then suddenly you are that person and you never wanted to be, and you were stepping into this place of like, this was not part of my plan. And we became other people. And we found out there's just too many of us out there. And it's a strange thing, Kate, you know, drowning is so prevalent in our country. You know, it's the number one cause of accidental death for kids ages one through four. And most of those happen in pools. And then it's the number two cause of accidental death for ages 15 to 19. And most of those happen in open water. And, you know, every time I get together with a group of people and I present, you know, I've told my story everywhere, all across the country and in national forums and local forums. And I always ask the question, you know, if you had to guess between pools and open water, which one has the most number of drownings? The answer is always pools. Wow. But the truth is that for every one person who dies in a pool, there's five who die in open water. And the reason it's sort of underreported is because it mostly happens to teenagers and it happens to adults. And there's always an assumption of, well, it's something they did wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like if somebody got in a car accident, you wouldn't automatically blame the victim. You know, but with drowning, that's how it goes. You automatically blame the victim. And in my son's case, you know, he went to a birthday party at a lake with four friends and a host family. He jumped off the top of the boat dock, which was the same jump he had done at our lake place. We were lake people. He was an excellent swimmer, a water bug. You know, he'd done that jump a thousand times. I'm not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Um, but he landed badly that time and he didn't have a life vest on, which was different from every other time he had been in the water. This was the first and only time we'd let Connor go to the lake with another family. 
and he died. And it happens over and over and over and over and over and over again mm -hmm. in our country. But it gets very little attention for what I would call the bigs. There's the littles and there's the bigs and the littles and every life matters. And I'm a drowning prevention advocate across the board, but I'm here to shed light on the problem, the very real and pervasive problem that is teenage and adult drowning because very few people are aware of it. So you said you were lake people. Connor was a good swimmer, I can assume. How old was he again? He was 15. Yeah, he had just run his first varsity cross country meet with his brother that morning. He was a runner, and he had made the uh, he'd made the varsity team as a freshman. And you have kids from you know how many kids do you have? Twelve hundred? How many kids? Like around a hundred? No, six. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well be a hundred. <laughs> how many do you have? Six. Six. Oh my gosh! And what are their ages? Yeah, fifteen. Wow, down to two. Almost three. Into two. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, your 15 year old is probably getting to the age where, you know, they want to experience their own thing. And so, you know, we let Connor go to the lake for the first and only time with another family. Connor grew up on the lake. He was an excellent swimmer. Um, you know, we were boaters and tubers and we um, spent almost every summer weekend on the lake. And, um, but we always, I don't know why, I can't explain why we had this rule, but we always had what I call a toe-in vest-on policy. Like, hmm. because lakes are just really different than pools. Any open body of water is different than pools. You know, if something goes wrong, you know, you can't see the person. And so, you know, and you can't save what you can't see. So we just always required our boys and their friends who came with them to the lake to wear a life jacket, even if they were just swimming on the shorelines. And I've since learned that eight out of 10 deaths that happen in open bodies of water are not in boats, but they're on the shorelines. They're just swimming, you know? And you tell me, cause you've got kids that, you know, go from two to 15. I think as parents, we sort of think, okay, I gotta teach my kid how to swim. Yeah. And then you go, I've checked the water safety box and we think we're done, you know, and um, we're not done. Yeah. Because after, you know, after that initial early phase of life where your kid can just sneak out the back door or I say sneak, that sounds nefarious, where they can just get out the back door because most of the littles are drowning during non-swim time, you know, Drowning is not this big event like you see in the movies of like, help me, help me. It's like, it's so fast and it's so quiet. Mm -hmm. Happens in a millisecond. And it usually happens when a kiddo is just, when they're little, when they're curious about a toy in the pool, which incidentally never leave a toy in the pool. Um, always have multiple barriers to your pool, whether it's, you know, high door locks or a pool, preferably a four-sided pool fence with a self-lighting gate all those things. But what happens is a kiddo gets curious, they go to the pool and they fall in and they, or they go in thinking that they'll be buoyant because maybe they've worn floaties or a life jacket in the pool, which is a whole other issue, which we can talk about later. But um, so ages one through four, you've got this big risk in pools because kids are naturally curious. Yeah. But then once you kind of get past that point of like, okay, my 
my baby knows how to swim. I can relax. You cannot relax. No. Because it's just like a seatbelt in a car. You know, lakes are really different than pools. Open bodies of water are really different than pools. You know, there's currents and there's things under the surface and there's there's things that are unpredictable and they're deep and they're murky. Yeah. So, you know, if, if something goes wrong and you don't have a way for that person to be pulled to the surface, um, you're in trouble. I just, I was never a good swimmer. And so water has just always felt really icky to me. I do not have good memories of swimming lessons. I didn't have too many situations where I had fun in water. I don't, I think like to me, I always feel like I'm being overly dramatic, but I'm just, I look at water and I feel like it's a accident waiting to happen. It just is so scary. And as a parent, I remember my, when I only had two kids and I brought them to the pool and I sat my, you know, I was holding them and my toddler at the time, I had turned my back for a second, like be right back. And I went to go like kind of play with my preschool age daughter. And, and I looked back and she like in five seconds just had plop, plop, plopped right in. And we had lifeguards watching, but they were visiting with each other and they had no idea that baby had slipped in the pool. And so I'm in the water and I, you know, I cannot get to her fast enough and I pull her out and she's fine. That was actually the first out of two times where that happened with her. So Mm -hmm. alarming and so scary and so fast and so quiet. Just like you said, I I take my kids swimming, but gosh, I cannot, it is, uh, my heart is at a, goes at a different rate every time. I just am so scared on edge and I don't know. There are so many accidents that happen. It's good that you have a healthy fear, you know, because uh, I think the folks that get in real trouble are the ones that don't respect the water and water is fun, but water is water and it is deadly and it does not discriminate. You know, it doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, what color you are, Uh, Where you live, your swimming ability in open water, it helps, but it doesn't really make a huge difference in open water. Good swimmers can drown and do. That's the story of my son. You know, so there's, for you with your babies, Kate, you know, it's good that you, you want to expose your kids to water and you want to give them that experience in water because water is part of our life. You know, it's water is life. You know, we need it on many, many levels. As long as they are raised to respect it, to know that, you know, it's a lifelong respect. It doesn't end once you know how to swim. You know, it, it actually goes all the way through. And you want your kids to enjoy the water. You want to be hypervigilant as a mom and dad. But you also want to understand that there are risks and that's the healthiest place to be is right in that kind of edgy middle point, you know, I'm always aware, always aware, you know, in, in, in your case, I'm guessing that your kids go to like a lot of pool parties or something or, you know, uh, yeah, there's lots of different, um, my youngest son got invited to a place where there is a wave pool. And I think maybe two summers ago, I was, I just remember we're in a wave pool and he is very excitable. He, you know, 
doesn't hold back a lot. So he was all so excited to go in, but these waves really can overcome you. And I remember, and I am overly sensitive to the risk, I think. And I don't know if that's a thing, but I was very sensitive to the risk. And so I'm, I'm in there and I just remember screaming, grab that kid. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, what kid? And I'm like, the black kid, like he was one of the only, so I had to be very clear, like grab him because he was clearly starting, you know, he was having the time of his life, but I could see the writing on the wall. It just, and again, lined with lifeguards and at a place where they're known for being good lifeguards, they're always going like this in the water. But I think it all of a sudden it becomes like this automatic thing that they do with their head. And I, I don't get the impression they're actually, I don't know. I don't want to. Mac doesn't lie. They can't physically watch every kid, you know, as young parents, and I'm guilty of this before, you know, I can't even believe the things I used to do before I lost Connor. Um, I would drop my kids off like at a water park and leave. I wouldn't do that today if my life depended on it. You know, you cannot trust, you know, a lifeguard is an insurance policy, but they are not a preventer. They, you know, you are not going to eliminate risk by having a lifeguard on duty. Now, lifeguards, we have a lot of good friends in this space, in the drowning prevention space, whose children have drowned in lifeguarded pools. And God bless them, you know, um, pain has to have purpose, suffering must have meaning, and they have taken their experience and they are helping educate lifeguards on, you know, how to do their jobs better. But even the most vigilant lifeguards, there's never going to be a one-to-one ratio. And guess what? If you are mommy or daddy, you have that one-to-one ratio in your favor. And so, yes, watch your kids. There's so many kids who drown in pools who are at large gatherings because they think somebody's watching. When the reality is nobody's watching because you just, there's, you get that false sense of security of like, we have numbers here. You know, I have too many stories. If you go to familiesunitedtopreventdrowning.org, that's Mm -hmm. one of our groups that I belong to. And it's, let me tell you something, it's a tough read. But if you go to familiesunitedtopreventdrowning.org and you read our stories, you will walk away being remarkably heartbroken, but also remarkably grateful that you understand all the risks and when it comes to our kids we'll pretty much do hard things right we can do hard things for our kids and uh you'll read the hard stories you'll read about connor you'll read about dozens of other stories the the crazy thing about water is you know sadly there's just too many dang ways to die you know there's pools there's open water there's riptides there's drain entrapments there's just sadly (laughs) a lot of risks with water and um, it's not a one size fits all solution so there's an army of us out here who are one by one by one story by story by story heartbreak by heartbreak by heartbreak sharing our information to make the unknowns known so we don't want anybody else to be us connor was with four of his friends at a late birthday party. And here's what I would say to any moms and teenagers who may be watching and tuning in, 
like think about it you know don't don't say that poor woman you know i appreciate your sympathy but what i really want is you know i'm happy i'm i'm appreciative that you feel bad for me but what i really want is for you not to be me because guess what unlike cancer and unlike other sort of undetectable health ailments Mm -hmm. drowning is preventable like 100 preventable a 30 dollar apparatus would have saved my son's life and it would save your son's life Mm -hmm. and if you think that my boy is so strong my boy was a cross-country athlete you know he was a lake kid he was an experienced water person he loved open water and he drowned and it can happen to anyone and 80 percent of these drownings are happening um, on shorelines not in boats yet our life jacket laws in the country really sort of work against us kate you know um i'm trying to think is you're in minnesota is that right Okay, I think you've got one of the worst life jacket laws. Wow. You are Michigan. I can't remember. But most, most states, life, life, jacket, life jacket laws are made state by state by state. Okay. And, but there is a federal regulation by the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, and most states follow that, but there are some outlier states that don't. Like Florida, it makes me nuts because they require life jackets only for kids five and under and only on boats, five and under right? Five. Are you kidding? Like, and Missouri is another one. I can't remember if it was Minnesota or Michigan. Um, but one of those lake states up high is the same way. I'm like, what the heck? But our life jacket laws, regardless of the state right now, only require life jackets on boats. Yeah. Yet only 10% of our drowning problems are on boats. You know, we're, we're losing the other 90% are happening while on swim beaches or on the swim shores um, where, you know, families are just gathering to have a good time. And like you said a minute ago, where it just take a, takes a split second, literally no time at all. And it doesn't mean you're a bad parent or that you're not vigilant or that you don't watch. You just have to know that if you're in open water, you're not going to see that baby when that baby goes under, you have a fighting chance if they're in a pool. If you are not in a pool and you, if you're in an open body of water, you're, you know, you have to just make life jackets like a seatbelt in a car, you know, because just because you know how to drive doesn't mean you won't have an accident. Just because you know how to swim doesn't mean you can't drown. We've got a long way to go culturally in the country to figure that out. And the United States is one of the, I digress, but I'm on the National Water Safety Action Plan group, and I'm, we as a country, frankly, suck on a lot of levels related to drowning prevention. You know, Canada, England, Australia, New Zealand, they all have drowning prevention plans from a federal level down. We are the only modern developed country that does not have a national drowning prevention plan. And it's taking 3,600 lives every single year. It reminds me a little bit of the mask mandate in that when COVID first started to become a problem and people were dying, 
And then masks were kind of like recommended and some people were doing it. Some people weren't. And I remember going into stores being like, Hey, are we doing this or not? It feels kind of weird and strange. It's totally foreign. Like I'll be fine. You know, maybe I don't need it. And then pretty soon once it, well, then it was absolutely mandated and then everybody was doing it and it got so normal. And I feel like that's how it would be. Maybe that's how it was back with seatbelts back in the day. I mean, or car seat safety. I mean, all that advocacy has come so far. And I'm, I'm just trying to think, it seems like such a foreign idea that life vest requirements would be, um, would become more prevalent um, that I did not realize it was so different from state to state. I think for Minnesota on a boat, you have to have one life jacket on the boat. It doesn't have to be worn, but it needs to, there needs to be one per person. I'm pretty sure. That's right. And you can put them, think about the insanity of that requirement. Okay. You're going to stow your seatbelts in a box under a bench. And then if you have an accident, you'll be able to reach them. Does that make any sense? Right. And in your panic, you'll be able-minded enough. You're, you've got some catastrophic event hitting your vessel. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have the presence of mind or the physical ability during the accident to reach those life jackets, physically put them on your person and the person of those you love. It's so archaic and I've been fighting Kate. I have, you know, far beyond, you know, Kate and I met in, uh, in year seven of my grief, um, after losing Connor and I had sort of my, I have an Airbnb in Waco, Texas. Kate stayed at it mm -hmm. and she, just, I never have, this is the first time we've actually physically spoken, even though I followed her on Facebook, but she touched me deeply. And I'm so, she was just completely amazing. But prior to us opening that Airbnb in Waco, Texas, all I've done is water safety work. I worked for Chicago Tribune for 25 years. I was a corporate marketing person for them. I lost Connor. I quit my job immediately. I founded the LV project and then I went to work. And what I realized is that we have a huge problem in our country. And I'm like, Lord, you know, could you not have just given me an easier one? <laughs> like, you know, could you not have given me something like the way I describe it is I'm stealing from a friend who also lost a son to drowning. But when you lose a son or a child to a preventable drowning, it's like that child got murdered and their killer is on the loose. Yeah. That's what it feels like every day for me. And so I would go to these national voting, you know, the U S coast guard has these, uh, comp these meetings every six months, every six months for seven years, I would go and I would say, do we realize that the 115 million that we're spending on drowning prevention is pointed towards boats and boats are only 10% of our drowning problem? I said that over and over and over and over and over. And I'm now on the board of the National Safe Boating Council. You know, the boulder is slowly inching uphill, um, but we have a long way to go, girl. So, 
And you know who I think is the trick? You know who I believe is the secret sauce to ending this problem? Mamas. Yeah. Mamas. Mm -hmm. I think if we can teach our mamas early on when our babies are in our bellies and we're learning about all the things we're, you know, we're already maternal, right? We're already like zoned in on keeping our babies safe. You know, if we can know when our babies are in our bellies, when we're learning about how to load them in a car seat and how to, uh, how to make sure they don't stick their finger in a light socket and how to teach them to stop, drop and roll. If we can teach them then that you got two peaks in drowning mama, you got ages one through four, those are in pools. And then you got ages 15 to 19 and that's in open water. You got your little and you got your big, still your baby all the way through. I lost my baby. He just happened to be 15 years old. We can teach them, we can teach mama and daddy when they're young mama and daddy, I think we have a shot. But right now, if I go out and try to tell a teenager who's never worn a life jacket in his life to put a life vest on, you think that's gonna work? Probably not. They're so foreign. Yeah, they'd say, I don't need it. I'll be fine. How many stories will it take for people to believe that this could happen to them? Um, and you said you were pretty water safety minded. Did so Connor as a teen would wear life jackets? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it absolutely. And, and Kate, this was the first and only time we let Connor go to the lake with another family. The, you know, the story is it was Labor Day weekend. He was a freshman in high school. He had just started his freshman year. It was August 31st of 2012 and like last minute he got an invitation to the lake and it was with a buddy of his we went to church with him school with him and he's like I really want to go mama and it was Labor Day weekend and you know how when your kids are 15 you kind of you want you're holding on loosely mm -hmm. right and you want them to start experiencing life on their own terms and um Connor knew our rule at the lake, you know, there are two people. Connor bears no culpability in his own death, none. And I'm talking zero because he's a 15 year old Kate. Mm -hmm. You know, he's 15, their brains are not fully developed, mm -hmm. you know. And if he's with four friends and that host family is not requiring life jackets. He's, there's no way he's going to put one on. Right. No way. He was comfortable with open water. He had been at our lake house every weekend of his, you know, adolescent life. And there are two groups responsible for my son's death. One is me, because I didn't have the presence of mind to ask, hey, you're going to use life jackets, right? Like, I just... It never crossed my mind to ask. I just thought everybody did it. It was so naive and so stupid. Um, I We did it and I just thought everybody did it. I really did. I mean, that's the truth. And the second responsible party is the host family. They did not require life jackets. They let those boys swim after dark. Connor did a jump from the top of the boat dock. It was 8.15 when he jumped in. 
the sun had set at 7.55, that's entirely too late to let people swim in an open body of water. He landed badly. He did not resurface. And 45 minutes later, my baby was pulled from the bottom of the lake by a dive team. It just takes that long. You know, we have a little piece, if you go to the LV Project website, it's called Five Hours One Friday. You know, I blew my son a kiss goodbye at 5.30. And at 10.30, I came back home, never to see him again. And it, it was just that fast and just that senseless. We're just working to make the unknowns known. And the family that had responsibility for Connor that day, you know, we have no relationship with them. Uh, they can't receive it or they, I don't know what the deal is and I don't ever really go there publicly because there's no good, you know, that can come from, that can come from it. You know, all you can do with tragedy is make it mean something. Uh, but I will tell you, if you have responsibility for kids and by kids, I mean teenagers on open water, you better take it seriously and you better make sure that you aren't in the position of my former friends where somebody dies on your watch. That's right. And you better put a life jacket on those kids because you never know. Good swimmers can drown and they do. Yeah, you can't be too overprotective or overvigilant. And the other thing that is so surprising to me is that you said he was with only four other friends or there were four or five of them? Five of them. Mm -hmm. Was it dark? How did they not notice that that Connor wasn't there with them. Well, and, you know, I want you to picture the scene, right? They're, they're playing follow the leader and they're being fun. They're goofy boys, right? Connor does this jump off the top of the boat dock and he just lands badly. And Connor was funny. He was a goofball. He was a silly kid. He was always goofing around. So at first his friends thought he was joking around. You know, I thought, oh, what's he doing? You know, and at that point, it's 10 seconds is too late, yeah. you know, and you can't see through lake water. You know, you hold your hand up 10 inches from your face. You're not going to see your hand. It was too late, even by the time they realized it. And when I say, you know, they realized it, he was already at the bottom, Kate, mm. you know, it's too late, which is why you have to wear a buoyancy device. You have to, because if he had just had something that would have pulled him to the surface, even if it's not a US Coast Guard approved life vest, which is another whole issue I won't get into right now. We have a product problem with life vests. You know, they're hot and they're bulky and we got, you know, that's a whole other world that I live in, what I, which I won't bore you with today. But, um, you know, we can send a text around the world in a millisecond, but we can't create something that will pull somebody to the surface if they get in trouble in open water. It's ridiculous. That's a Shark Tank episode in the future. There were lots of things that went wrong that night. One, those boys should not have been swimming that late. Two, it was a lake they didn't know. Mm. Three, the 
the host family rented the lake house. They were not lake people. Um, it wasn't their lake place. Four, they weren't watching. You know, the, the adults in charge were not watching. And five, the most important thing is they didn't require life jackets. So, you know, it, it was just a comedy of errors. Just every possible thing that could have gone wrong went wrong. And I won't get into this, but, you know, we didn't get a call till an hour after Connor jumped in. I mean, the PTSD is real. It, it, it was real stuff. It's tough stuff. But all that to say, and I, I think you can relate to this, that suffering has a way of providing enormous clarity in your life. Yeah. Don't you think? Did oh. you find that? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm looking forward to hearing how that has looked for you. But I feel, I almost feel like I'm a foreign person to myself because I'm, some people maybe wouldn't be able to see it, but I feel it every day, how different I am after such a life altering experience. Yeah. Well, it's, I think the reason you're different is the same reason I'm different mm -hmm. because the things that don't matter, don't matter. And the things that do matter more. Absolutely. And you don't have any tolerance for nonsense. Right. And the nonsensical things that, you know, there's really just one thing that matters in this life and that's love. Mm -hmm. That's the only lasting thing. Love wins every time. And, um, and if you look for the love, the rest will follow. And that's what we, that's why we called it the LV project mm. is um, because that's really all safety is. I was going to call it Connor's best, Kate, and I could hear Connor going, oh my gosh, mom, <laughs> <laughs> don't freaking call it Connor's best. I mean, gross, you know, so we called it the LV project. And, you know, for the first five years, we did stuff that had nothing to do with water. We did we built a soccer field in Ghana for kids who've been trafficked and we built um, garden gardens for nursing homes, just all kinds of buoyancy projects. But with every loss, there's this beautiful silver lining. Yeah. And um, with every challenge and every struggle, there's something, there's this thread of hope that emerges and, I would give everything in my life to have my son back. I would like to have my bubble back. Mm -hmm. I would like to not be in Waco, Texas, restoring broken down homes because they represent my life, which is exactly what I thought when I walked into that terrible house. And then I was like, I'll take it. This is my life. And, you know, I would prefer not to be there. I prefer to have my naive little bubble back. But since I can't, um, I'm going to live in reality. And the reality is that um, people who've experienced pain also create the greatest purpose. Mm. And that's the other thing I would say about this grief is like, you know, everybody grieves differently. You know, we, you know, we, it, there's three of us now. It's, you know, it's my husband, Brett, me, and Riley, who we call Rye. And, um, uh, we all grieve differently. We all have our own paths and there's no right way 
to do this. You know, my way has been to form a nonprofit foundation and I'm advocating tirelessly, yeah. <laughs> trying anyway to, to prevent my story from repeating. Guess what? Brett, my husband is a school teacher, has nothing to do with it. Riley doesn't want anything to do with it. That's okay. Because my path for meaning is different than their path for meaning. And it doesn't have to be the same. I don't know if you've noticed that in your story. Mm -hmm. For sure. Maybe it's different because, yeah, I mean, there's just all sorts of different things that have come up. But I'm a lot like you in that when, whether it was anything that has happened in my life that elicits any type of emotional response, good or bad, I want everybody to know about it. And not about me, but how they can experience it or have grace for it. So like if something great happens, I want, I want to share with people, but when hard things happen, so off the top of my head, I'm thinking uh, I lost a pregnancy um, when I got cancer, whatever it may be, the hard things. I, I just, I think it was a huge wake up call each time. Like these things that, that you, I wanted to either prevent them for others, specifically breast cancer, or make the world know that this happens to real people and it could happen to you too. And this is how we can be better. I don't know. Or like be more knowledgeable. Do you ever get the, um, I can't imagine. Oh, right. Have you done that? Oh yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. I, can't I, imagine. I say it all the time, but yeah, I can't imagine. And I always, I don't know how you respond to that, but my thought is I want you to imagine and I want you to see what that does to you when you imagine. Because if you actually imagine, A, having a, a, a life-threatening terminal illness, right. or if you imagine losing your child, you know, believe me, it will change things for the better for you. Yeah. You know, if you try to imagine all the clutter fades away, you know, nothing, nothing unimportant rises to the surface. Only the thing that's only the things that matter, matter. So when people would say to me, I can't imagine, or when people would say to me, like, uh, you're so strong, you know, <sighs> and that's when I would be like, I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> Better get something more than a life vest on because... <laughs> here I no I'm not strong I'm right. surviving and yeah. guess what you would too yeah you know I'm not strong you know I w there was this uh, saying that I read after losing Connor and it said um I don't want to be pitied for my weakness and I don't want to be admired for my strength mm -hmm. I just want to be understood and that you know that understanding, as we both probably know, is a very small circle. And healthy boundaries are necessary when you are going through immense trauma mm -hmm. and grief. And, you know, that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. And you got to protect your grief garden, you got to protect your sanctuary. And you got to close the gate to the people that should not be coming in and you can blast it open for the very few who are willing to walk the road with you 
Um, but those who offer fixes or judgments or opinions or when they have not walked the road do not belong. And that was a real tough one for me because I love everybody. <laughs> that was a tough one. Closing that closing the gate to my grief garden was a hard one for me. Yeah. How do you deal with that through your cancer diagnosis? It was interesting because one of the first things that somebody told me when I, after my diagnosis, another a survivor in a support group said, you're going to lose friends. And I was like, what? Like, what kind of weird advice is that? I was at the point of like grief and, and panic and being just very scared because um, it was very soon after. I just didn't know what was ahead, but um, I just, and they said, you know, you'll find the silver linings. And I was at the point of like, how can there be anything? But I just, when you are in that state where you have to be very self-absorbed, like when you are in the thick of your loss, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure, as you feel it every day, but you know, in those moments and days after and the weeks and the months, when I just found the hardest part was people who weren't comfortable with how I chose to live how I chose to cope, how I chose to survive. And it was there that I had to learn real quick about boundaries and healthy people in my life. And, and I think it gave me the courage to recognize the things and the people in my life who had been unhealthy for a very long time. And it gave me the strength to be like, wow, I'm done. Because when you are fighting for your life, and your survival, I, I, I keep saying like, I think that we are born to survive. Like if we are given the situation where we are in danger, we're made to want to live. And that's how yes. I was feeling. And, and that I didn't have the patience to deal with people's bullshit anymore <laughs> and to have them be harmful to me anymore. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're mean or bad, but no, there's no bad guys. No, I just, it, there were things in my life that just weren't working anymore. And it gave me the silver lining was that it gave me the courage then to pursue what I needed to do to be well. And I'm a totally different person for it. But... Well, I have followed you mm. and I have cheered you on from Texas and I've seen you at the George Floyd site, I have watched you fearlessly change your life uh, for truth. And I, I personally believe I'm in the buoyancy business and I personally believe truth is the most buoyant thing of all. Mm. And people will cling like hat to it to, to keep it under the surface, but you can't sink truth. It always rises. And uh, I've watched you and and I know it's um, it's courage, but it's also somebody. I, I think I was listening to like Glennon Doyle or something. Mm -hmm. She said, "There, you know, courage uh, starts with rage." You know, like people will say, "Well, how do you do what you do?" Because I'm so pissed off. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, Connor right. didn't have to die. It started with rage, and then it turns into courage. So mm -hmm. there's always rage and courage, and I see that fire in you, and I um, I applaud you for your, I know you've turned your whole world upside down. Um, 
but there's, you know, when you get broken, you know, usually what's left is um, the only thing that matters, you know, like when you're broken, all the pieces that shouldn't be there get tossed off to the side and then you can rebuild yourself with the pieces that matter. And it's, you come up so much stronger. The, the things that fade away when you're broken are the things you were meant to lose anyway. Yeah. And um, so I've really watched you and um, I'm applauding uh, because I, I know that some of the things that you've been through have been um, not the cultural norm. But I can't think of anything that's worth doing and worth fighting for that actually ever has been part of the cultural norm. Isn't that why we're here to just, you know, break through the norms to, to expose truth. And um, I've seen you do that. I've admired it. Thank you so much. It's... Yeah, you never wish um, hard things on anyone. I, I say continuously, like, I want people to start living without having to go through a life altering event in order to do so, you know, start living your dream. Don't wait for a diagnosis or a death or a personal tragedy to wake up. And I don't know how to even manufacture that, but I mean, how do you get the boldness and the braveness without that rage or that broken to pieces so I don't, I don't know I, I I you know one of the few things you know I was I grew up in the church of Christ my father was an elder my grandfather was a pastor mm-hmm. and I have been a Sunday Wednesday churchgoer my entire life and then I lost Connor and it was a spiritual earthquake I was like excuse me, I have done all the things, you know, I checked all the boxes. We were churchgoers. We had a youth group at our house. We had small group. We prayed every day for protection of our children. And then our baby dies. Like, like what the heck, Lord? Like, wait a minute. We help. We did all those things, Lord. Like we, we carried our end of the bargain where are you? Like, this is bullshit. And I remember, uh, with no disrespect, because I actually have great respect for her now, but like, um, somebody gave me a Nancy Guthrie book Mm -hmm. and, um, like in the, uh, she's lost two small children, uh, infants and, and, uh, it, and, and if you're watching this, please don't give me any crap for this, but you know, because we all have our own back, but like, she said, won't you find God's purpose through your pain? And I was like, what God, mm-hmm. what God, what loving father? Well, when I find his purpose, no, I don't even know if he exists. Like all these things I've done up to this point are clearly meaningless because guess what? I'm lying here in the rubble of my now perfect life what was my perfect life. I'm sitting in the shards of my broken dreams and I don't believe in God. I don't believe anything. And I didn't. And I ran. Mm -hmm. 
I began running and I ran and I ran. I was forest gumping all over. I just ran for days. Um, for days, I just ran. Wow, you for literally years. started running. Yes, I ran, I ran, I ran and I ran and I ran. And I have these little stickers. I wish I had one on me. Um, see if I have one around here. I don't think I do. This is CG. It's the sticker that my my Connor's friends put on their helmet. Stands for Connor Gage. And it says CG. It's just a simple CG sticker. And it's a little round circle sticker, black with white type. And I would grab those stickers and I at every mile marker, I would stop. I'd run a mile and I would stop. And I would just say, what do I see? I'd look around and say, what do I see? And I'll never forget the first thing I saw on my first mile of doing that, which was literally like two days after we lost Connor. Mm -hmm. um, there was nothing around. I was waiting for like the big mountain or the big rock or the big, yeah, you know, there was nothing. Like I looked around, I was like, I'm at the mile marker. I'm expecting some kind of spiritual sign. But I looked down and I see one of these nondescript control valve boxes, you know, that probably if you lift it up, you'd see a water main or something. And it on the top, it says control. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I think that's what I'm supposed to see. That I don't have any control and I put a CG sticker on that control box and then I put there's thousands of stickers mm -hmm. CG stickers around my hometown because I would do that at every mile marker okay what and I would come back and then I would seek the word and I would say what am I supposed to know about control and he told me he's like look that thing you had before you know that thing you thought before that was nonsense that's why you're so pissed off at it, Dana. He's like, you know, I'm so glad that you're pissed off mm -hmm. and your anger is real and it's righteous and it's nice to meet you. That's what I heard him saying through my running. And he just meets you where you are, you know, like that's what he does, you know. Um, he changed the way I thought about him through my running. Mm -hmm. And it's the only thing I could do at that point is run. And so, you know, my church looks very different today than it did before losing Connor. Mm -hmm. And maybe the same for you since yeah. your cancer diagnosis. Church yeah. is really different. Yeah, for many reasons. But I, yeah, I'm still figuring that one out. So, yeah. And I don't think I was mad at God it made me examine all the pieces and the way that church and, and religion had been leading up that piece. I needed to just <laughs> rebuild it in a different way. So we'll see working on it. Working on it. Well, you, you know, my hero, one of my spiritual heroes is Kirk Franklin. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my boys loved Kirk, uh, growing up. They just loved soul music. They were always just like, they loved, uh, soul music and Kirk, my, my son Riley wrote Kirk a letter when we lost him. Kirk showed up at Connor's funeral oh my God. and, um, 
he's not letting me go. He and his wife, Tammy, have, um, they're the real deal. They've, they've been Jesus to us. Wow. And, uh, um, you know, when I, Kurt comes from a lot of brokenness, you know, he was basically abandoned by his mother, raised by his grandmother, Mm. you know, uh, found the Lord through a lot of music and, um, his, as he says in one of his songs, I put a lot of miles on these, on this heart, you know, um, but his, his unwavering faith is been a real blessing to us. And, um, I can't remember why I brought him up, but yeah, just kind of rebuilding our faith and yeah, just, you never know what's going to happen. You never know. And I've told him and his wife many times, I'm like, y'all, you know, I don't even know where you came from. And this is not a, we've been blessed by so much community support, but church got redefined for us. Yes. We didn't redefine it. It got redefined for us almost outside in because we didn't belong in the same ecosystem anymore. Mm -hmm. Like we couldn't just jump right back in to where we were when we lost Connor. We didn't just lose Connor. We lost all the things that went along with him, all the parties and all the youth group events and all that. And, you know, when you don't fit in anymore, um, it's up to the ecosystem to come meet you where you are. And that's hard for a lot of people. And I, I would have been that person. I would have been that person that said, Oh my gosh, those gauge people. I can't even imagine how much, how difficult it must be for them. And that would have been, and I'm going to pray for them. And that would have been a period at the end of that sentence. But then we had a few people, like you said earlier, Kate, you know, your friend group, friends become strangers and strangers become friends. That is precisely what happened. Mm -hmm. It happened with people we didn't know at all. And they suddenly just rose to the surface. And it's like, where would I be without you? Kirk and his family is one of those groups. You know, they, we didn't know them at all. They've become amazing friends, people that we've never talked to more than five minutes. You know, they are now our dearest friends and God just does that for you. Right. Like he just gives us, he brings what we need when we need it because what we needed before doesn't fit anymore. I feel them. I hear you. I know you do. I just, and I, I always think about like what somebody listening to this might take from this. And I guess all I can hope is that people who listen continuously will like pick things up along the way and like almost put it in like a tool belt of sorts. And then maybe down the line when their life bottoms out or somebody else in their community that they'll think, oh, I remember this podcast where Dana Gage was on there talking about this and that they'll be able to somehow be, I always say, may you be richer and better for it. Like I want people to be able to, yeah, just feel like they're just equipped for this crazy life based on what they hear and learn here. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kate. Uh, I can't wait to have you back. So come on back anytime. Awesome. And continue good health and prayers for your family. Yes, and you too. All right. Thanks, friend. Bye. Bye. 
I think it would be a great honor to Dana and to Connor's memory to really think critically about how we respect and use water, especially going into this July 4th weekend as this is airing. Um, you can check out the lvproject.org or www.honorconnorrun.com. You can look up Dana and her causes on social media. You can find that at Honor Connor Run and at LV Project, or find her and follow her personally at Dana Gage. Also, I gotta put in a plug for her. Staying at her Waco property was amazing. Really, really sweet, close to just a block away from Magnolia Properties, the silos. It was just charming and wonderful, like being on an HGTV show. So definitely look up the Poppy and Rye House. Thank you so much for listening. May you be better and richer for it. Have a very safe and secure holiday weekend.